morning we just honor your name. Lord, we declare that you are worthy of all praise and honor, dominion and power. And Lord God, we just pray this morning that as we turn to your word, Lord God, our eyes would be open to your truth. Lord, that our hearts would be ready to receive what it is you want to deposit in us today, God. Father, I pray today, God, that we would leave with a greater uh, love for Christ and a greater passion for the calling on our life, Lord. God, you've not just called us to be converts and Christians. You've called us to be disciples, those who follow in the way of Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning, Lord, I just pray right across this room, Lord, that there would be a humility and a willingness to receive the truth of your word, God. We don't strive to to twist it, to make it mean something we want it to mean, God. We want to receive your truth just exactly as you want to speak it to us this morning. Lord, and we know, we're confident, Lord God, that as we gather, Lord, as you send forth your word, it will not return to you void. In other words, Lord God, it will produce fruit if we receive it. And so, God, we come in the posture of humility this morning, God. Father, we may have all sorts of personality quirks and agendas and biases, but Lord, this morning I pray, Father, that we would uh, humble ourselves under your mighty hand and receive what it is that maybe you want to say to us this morning and what it is in the way that you want to challenge us this morning. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, amen, amen. So good to see you this morning. Just turn to the neighbor next to you and give them warm Sunny Hill welcome. Unless you don't like them, then turn to the other one instead. It really is good to be together. Really is so good to be together. By the way, if you like my shirt, you can buy it from Sainsbury's for £8. Just saying. An old Sunny Hillite who has moved to another part of the country texted me yesterday. Ross, you remember Ross Anita? He texted me a picture of this shirt in Sainsbury's and I was like, I'm going right now. And I did go right now and I got myself a free Dom shirt. So um, if you want one, eight pound, I mean, it may not be so pertinent to you if your name's not Dom, but if it is Dom, totally worth having, of course. Um, So today we're going to be looking at a difficult theme. Uh, It is a communion Sunday. In other words, hopefully you've received one of these uh, little communion cups. I know it's a little bit weird, different to how we normally do it, but we think this is the best way to do it in this season. And it's really easy to transport as well. So that's a win. But we'll get to that point in a moment. Um, But today, I'm going to be talking on the theme of surrender, something that I think Jesus has been talking to me a lot about, because for the most part, we're hopeless at surrendering. You know, if you're a control freak, you know, I believe to control is the antithesis of to surrender. If you're a control freak, put your hand up. Okay, that's, I was going to say that's awesome. It's not awesome, really, is it? Let's be honest about it. But if you're one of the people in the chairs wanting to lift the person of your neighbor's hand, like then you're really a control freak. You've got issues today, okay? And Jesus wants to set you free, okay? So that's good news. Um, But there's something interesting that happens in John 14, and we looked at it briefly last week, where Jesus makes this crazy uh, statement. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus brings that statement into existence when Thomas says, we don't know the way to the place you're going. Because Jesus is trying to kind of encourage his disciples when they're feeling quite troubled in their heart. And he says, listen, I am the way to the place you need to go. And of course, Jesus in this moment is talking about heaven and living in the Father's house, and that's amazing. But I do believe that when Jesus says, I am the way, he's not just speaking about a path to heaven. He's speaking to a life that is flourishing. He's speaking to a life that is blessed. He's speaking to a life that is whole and full. 
And I believe that you don't just have to, you know, wait for the pie in the sky till you die scenario. I believe the Christian life is about an abundance of living right now on earth, experiencing the goodness of God every single day. And because that's my conviction, I find it interesting that Jesus marries two ideas together when he says, I am the way. You see, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, Jesus, or God, one of the names for God, we see it in Exodus 3, at the burning bush with Moses, where God says, I am. And grammatically, it doesn't really work because it's kind of void of any tense. But you kind of understand that what God is saying is like, I am, I've always been, I am always have existed, and I always will exist. And so we see in a number of places in the Old Testament, God, Jehovah, referred to as I am. And in this moment in John 14, Jesus takes this moment to kind of reveal his deity by saying to his disciples, I am. When we had Aidan's baptism on the beach uh, a few months ago, it was amazing, and I gave the gospel message, and I don't know if you remember, uh, but there was a, a Muslim present, which was great, you know, we, we welcome everybody, we want them all to hear the gospel, but he took issue with the fact that I said that Jesus was God. That was his primary issue, and so he says, nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus say he is God. But it's interesting, actually, because if you know how to read the gospels, you can see that it's all over the gospels. Every time Jesus makes an I am statement, he is putting himself on par with Father God. So when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's essentially saying, I am the Lord, I am a good shepherd. When he says, I am the gate for the sheep, what he's saying is, I am the Lord, I am the only way into salvation. When he says, I am the true vine, he again is connecting himself to this Godhead who he... Um, Submits under. So it's a weird dynamic because Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing, only speaks what he hears the Father saying, yet in it, Jesus makes bold claims. The boldest potentially is when he says, I think it's in John 8, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, physically, it's impossible because Jesus existed 2,000 years ago and Abraham preceded the person of Christ by hundreds of years or thousands of years. And yet Jesus makes this claim, before Abraham was, I am. Speaking to his, his godness, his identity as divine. And what's really cool, what we often miss in John 14, is that when he uses the term, the way, this is a big Greek philosophical idea. In Greek, the word is hodos, and what it speaks to is the essence of life. Like, that's what the Greeks would say. This is the way to live. This is the way to rule. This is the way to govern. This is the way to philosophize. And Jesus says in this moment in John 14, I am connecting this Hebrew tradition of Jehovah to the way, which is a Greek philosophy about culture and the essence of life. And in all of this, Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the essence of life. Now, you might be thinking, well, why are you saying all this? Well, because I guess I'm trying to build an argument this morning that the fact that Jesus is God and the fact that Jesus is the essence of life requires you to respond to that in some sort of way. I mean, you can't really be indifferent to it. I mean, you can reject that truth. You can reject Jesus and say, I want to live life without Jesus. But if this morning or at some point in 
years gone by, you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, then actually there's a call on your life that really matters. And actually your response is paramount that you get it right. And the only response to Jesus in this moment is total surrender. Now you might think, well, what do you mean when you say total surrender? So let's have a look at this, right? Open your scriptures to uh, Matthew 19, verse 16. I want to show you something. Matthew 19, verse 16. It may come up on the screen. It may not do. But we see that this man comes up to Jesus. Okay, this guy comes up to Jesus. And, you know, if your Bible's like mine, the subheading is the rich young ruler. Okay, so what we recognize about this man is that he's got money, he's got wealth, he's got influence, and he's got status. I was thinking if this was like a modern-day moment, maybe this guy would be like a YouTuber or a social media celebrity. Like maybe, I don't know, I'm not cool enough to kind of just roll them off my tongue, but name a really famous social media influencer, somebody. Pardon? Mr. Bean, did you say? Mr. Beast, I don't know who that is. But I just imagine in this moment that this young guy comes to Jesus with a measure of pride and confidence because by the world standards, he's an all right guy. And what we read is he says this, he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Because even in the midst of his status and influence and wealth, he recognized that there was a deficit of some sort. He recognized that there was a lack. And so he goes to Jesus, acknowledging Jesus. You know, it's important that he makes that. He's a teacher at this point. He's a rabbi, not necessarily God. And he says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus responds, verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And so essentially what he's saying to the guy is, listen, on your own merit, by your own performance, if you want to inherit eternal life, then you've got to be perfect. You've got to be excellent. You've got to fulfill all the commandments, 612, 613 commandments in the Old Testament. You need to fulfill them all if you want to inherit eternal life. And the guy in verse 18, I mean, you can hear his pride. He says, which ones, he inquired. As in, which ones specifically are important for me to keep? In order to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, you shall not murder, right? Put your hand up if you've never murdered. Okay, if your hand's not up and you're sat next to that person, move out the way, quick. All right, okay. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. We won't do any more straw polls now. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. In other words, you won't lie about others. You will honor your father and mother. Right, young people, kids, put your hand up if you have consistently honored your mother and father or the person who cares for you over the course of the last year, which has only been about three weeks so far. Put your hand up. Dominica, my gosh. Please, Caleb, spend time with this young girl. That's amazing. Okay? Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, listen to the tenacity and audacity of this influencer. He says, all these I've kept. You're like, what now? Are you kidding me? Like, he is so arrogant and blind to his dysfunction and deficit that from his perspective, he's all good. Like, yeah, no, I've not killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen. I've honored my father and mother. I've never lied. I've always loved my neighbor as myself. There's not one person on the face of the planet who has done all of those things apart from Jesus. And Jesus says this, and the young man says, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? 
And Jesus answered, listen, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Something so powerful and challenging about Jesus' response to this man, because I can't help myself but picture myself as the pastor of Sunny Hill, a rich young man coming to talk to me on a Saturday afternoon in Sainsbury saying, Dominic, what must I do to fold into the life and fellowship of Sunny Hill Church? And instinctively, my response is, well, just show up. You know, because you're a man. Yes. You're young. Yes. You're rich. Double yes. You know, we need people like you in the church. You will help us get our message out there. And in the midst of it, the church, I think, and I'm just being vulnerable now with you, becomes so desperate for attendees that we lower the bar of discipleship right down here so that it has very little impact into somebody's life. Like they can come in and rock up and this isn't about creating a culture of judgment. I don't want you to hear that. But the bar is so low that actually you can come, be a part of it, and, you know, don't worry, you will not be challenged. Your sin will not be addressed. Your immaturity will be tolerated, sometimes maybe celebrated. But Jesus stands before this rich young ruler, this influencer, and says, listen, this is what you lack. You need to go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then you can come and follow me. Why does Jesus say that? Because Jesus knew the one thing that was going to become an idol in this man's life. And until this man was willing to yield and surrender this thing, he could never truly follow Jesus. I mean, this is hard to speak, let alone hear. Because, like, just think for a moment. Put yourself in this young, rich, young ruler's Shoes, just for a minute, maybe his Gucci shoes, okay, or his Jimmy shoes, okay? Stand in his Jimmy shoes for a moment and just go, can I honestly say I have surrendered everything to this invitation to follow Christ? Is there anything in my life that is still not yet yielded to his plans and his purposes? Now, I don't want you to raise your hands. But let me tell you, money isn't the only idol in the scripture, okay? It can be the idol of anxiety. It can be the idol of the fear of man. Maybe you're scared of people because you desperately need affirmation that your mom and dad never gave you. And all these things when you're a child make sense. But as you give your life to Christ and you go into maturity, you've got to understand we put the childish things behind us. And what we move to is a... Total surrender and total commitment to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the hard thing. Because Jesus knew that he could never build with this man until money, possessions, stuff, the spirit of mammon was laid down. You think about the other disciples, you think of Simon, you think of Andrew, you think of James and John. When Jesus called them at the outset of Matthew, all of them left, left something. Like it, it says that some of them left their fishing nets, their trade, their livelihood to follow Jesus. The thing that was their source of income, they knew they had to lay it down to follow Jesus completely. 
Like it speaks, I think it's um, James and John left their father. Wow. Zebedee, that is right. That is James and John's dad, right? Yeah, good. Okay. Left their father, Zebedee. Think of Matthew. It literally said he left the tax collector's booth, his status, his influence, his, the thing that kept him in the, you know, kept the Romans in his pockets and him in the pockets of the Romans. It's like there is this cost of discipleship. And it's kind of like these, these verses in Scripture that haunt me where, where Jesus says, look, if you will follow me, you need to pick up your cross and deny yourself. But the problem is, is like we so champion attendance to church that these things become secondary rather than primary. But let me tell you, if there's just, if there's just five of us in the room this morning who will pay the price, there's five of us who will go, okay, Jesus, if that's what you're asking of me, then this week I'm going to go and I'm going to go and deal with this. Because what's interesting is what we read about this man is when the man, young man heard this in verse 22, he went away sad. <laughs> you know, like, like the mantra of church is make people feel like they're a million dollars. Build them up. And I'm all down with that. Encouragement and, and you know, inspiring and affirming the people of God. But sometimes you leave the presence of Jesus sad. Because you realize that when you stand next to Jesus, how broken you are. You see, this rich young ruler, he'd always compared himself to a friend. Never to the I am. And on the basis of that, as Paul says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so all of us are in need, are in need for a savior. But Jesus calls for total and radical surrender. So maybe there's some demigods, undergods this morning. What I mean is a gods under Jehovah. Maybe it's the acceptance, a demigod of acceptance or popularity. Maybe it's the demigod of vocation or career. Maybe it's the demigod of convenience. I wrote this in my notes this week. Sometimes I follow the way until the way goes in a way I don't want to go. Maybe you can relate to that. Sometimes I follow the way until the way goes in a way I don't want to go. Or sometimes I follow the way until the way gets in the way. <laughs> Let me say that again. Sometimes I follow the way until the way gets in the way. Then all of a sudden I find a way to circumvent Christ in my walk with Jesus, which is the most stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's got you know, the spirit of dumbness all over it. You know, last Friday night, we had a profound evening of prayer and repentance as we gathered in Corf Mullen, and we thanked God for the week of prayer and fasting, and we laid hands, and we anointed people with oil, and we prayed tenacious prayers for healing and breakthrough and deliverance from anxiety and fear and all these things, and it was brilliant. And at the end of the evening, I felt Jesus say something to me that I, I resisted to my core because it's cheesy, and it was, you need to get everyone in a circle, which is so 80s church, okay? Get everyone in a circle, like Jesus doesn't move in triangles and squares. Everyone must be in a circle, okay, for the Holy Spirit to, otherwise he gets confused on the way around, okay? And we need to link arms, which is like early 90s, okay? And we need to sing our surrender all, which is 70s, okay? And so, like, I'm having this debate with God. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't want to do that. Like, it feels like cultish. It feels like kumbaya moment. It feels like round the fire, I surrender all. 
But I did it because, like, I'm trying to learn to be obedient. I don't always get it right. But we stood in the circle, and we sung, I surrender all. And I just felt like, is it fair to say the Spirit of God? I don't know. But let me just say this. A thought came into my mind is, most of the time, if we sang the truth to how we respond to Jesus, it'd be more apt to sing, I surrender some. (laughs) I surrender some. I surrender some, or to thee, my blessed, no, some to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender some. It just wouldn't work as well as a worship song, I don't think. But the reality, even this morning, and I'm really good with you being upset about this message or feeling like I'm never going to come here again. You know, it's sad, but that's okay. But I need you to hear that Jesus is not calling you to follow him some. He's he's calling you to follow him all. Not to surrender some, not to give some, but to give all. To surrender all. It's crucially important in John 14. In verse 15, Jesus says, not long after he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. (laughs) Funny, isn't it? When you think about the rich young ruler, who is like, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you keep my commands if you want to try and do it in your own strength. But in this moment in John 14, Jesus is proposing a different way. Hey, listen, if you champion your relationship with Christ and you become passionate about his glory, his name and his renown, the fruit of that is you keep the commands. So you're not motivated by legalism or work or or this idea of being religious you're motivated because Jesus is your everything Jesus is the center of it all and when you have that moment of revelation it's like (laughs) you know just like Paul says and I'm going off script so I may get it all wrong now but I, I just need you to capture this moment is is he says, like, grace abounds every time we sin. The goodness of God is right there. Even when you make a mistake, it's not like God turns his back. He is still faithful. He is still gracious. He is still kind. And he still loves you. But Paul says this. He says, he doesn't say, let me tell you what he doesn't say to begin with. He doesn't say, so therefore, keep up your good behavior. Keep performing. Keep smashing out of the park. And Jesus will continue to love you. He doesn't say that. He says, ultimately, But like the goodness of God is so good, so good. Does this mean that we continue to to live in sin? He says, by no means. Like you've died to sin. Why would you want to live there any longer? Like there's this moment that like we move from this works-oriented faith about work hard, do more, read one extra verse in the scripture, get more holy, pray for two extra minutes. And we, we circumvent relationship with Jesus and we enter religion with Jesus. There's no life in religion. There's no relationship in religion. And for some of us this morning, Jesus has been the back burner in our life for so long. We have pursued other idols. It's such an unpopular message, but we have pursued the God of mammon. We have pursued the God of success. Even in our church kind of ministry we've pursued the wrong things and Jesus is just standing before you this morning just imagine it and he's saying listen if you want to follow me you need to go and give this up 
so that nothing gets in the way. Jesus was never scared about depleting the number of his followers. He would give bold teaching and do radical things that would, in many ways, put people off. Like, oh, this is awkward. I'm out of here. Like, drink the blood. I don't think so. Like, I'm out of here. But Jesus was never about building a fan base. Jesus has always been about building followers, disciples. And the reason that this is important is because Jesus says, look, if you love me, you keep my commands. Loving Jesus looks like obedience. I love obedience. I'm a dad. Let me tell you, obedience is one of my favorite things in the whole world. I love it. I love it when my kids are obedient. Because in their obedience, I kind of feel like they're choosing to trust me with what I've asked them to do. I remember one time, I don't know whether Caleb remembers this, but like, and this is trying to help you understand what obedience looks like. First of all, we can be obedient to the Word of God. We can find instructions and, and, um, and standards for living that we can become obedient to. But also, Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. And sometimes, he will say something into your ear. Sometimes, he will drop something into your spirit. And it's about learning to grow in discernment and learning to hear. You've got ears to hear, like Jesus says. And it's learning to kind of go, okay, Jesus, I hear what you're saying. But the problem is, I know exactly what battle most of us face. Is like, did God say that or did I say that? You know, like you're, you're thinking like, I've had a number of these occasions where I once, um, and I know I've shared this story a couple of times because clearly it's still a problem in my life. But one time where God told me to give my iPad Pro away. Later, I found out it was the church's iPad Pro, so I didn't feel so bad. <laughs> you know, I, I, it was a weird thing. It was one evening where, like, I, I, I was worshipping at a church, and I was on my knees at the front at an altar call whilst we were on holiday, and I kept looking back to make sure that my iPad was safe on the chair. Right? And it was like the, almost like this moment, which was just so, so horrible, because as I'm on my knees surrendering to Christ, I'm looking at my iPad to make sure it's still there. Like, you know, <laughs> you know the, the world behind me, the cross before me, apart from the iPad, that's still kind of important right there. And I felt Jesus to say to me, you need to give that to him. And, and I remember wrestling with it. That I didn't do it that night. So I said to Louise, I said, listen, sit down. God's told me to do this, thinking that she might say, well, that's a lot of money, Dom. But she said, okay, that's cool. Do it. I was like, no, no, no. A second opinion, please. Just, you know, reconsider. Because I like the idea that God's got beef with you and not me. So if you say no, I'll obey you. That's fine. And you can take it up with the Lord. But she said, well, and it was like this simple. She was like, what is the worst thing that will happen if God hasn't said that? Well, then I'm generous for no purpose. <laughs> exactly. That's a good thing. You know, you don't have to, you don't need an oracle from heaven you know, <laughs> to become generous. Like there was this moment where I was like, gosh, you're right. The worst thing that can happen is this person's encouraged in their faith. And I feel sucky about losing an iPad. So sometimes when you're trying to grow in obedience, it's about learning that actually, if I do do this, what's the worst that can happen? Like, granted, you know, you don't want to be going to people in the room, I just got this nudge in my head that God's saying you should move to Lebanon. Okay, it's not great to do that, but when it comes to following the obedience of the Holy Spirit in your own soul, it's like, What's the worst that can happen if I become obedient to what the Lord is saying? And I guess for me, like this is my own observations. I, I have no scripture to back this up with, but maybe someone can find something to help me. There's this sense that like 
the more I step out in what I think God is saying, the more I'm learning obedience and will eventually understand the voice of God. In other words, even if God hasn't asked me to do something, but I respond in obedience to what I think he said, surely that's an obedience, right? Are you tracking with me? I know it's a bit weird. Like There was this time a few years ago where Caleb had built this elaborate train track out of like that Hasbro wood and stuff and it takes forever to kind of get that stuff you know because when I build it you know what I'm talking about that old school Victorian wooden train track and like you get impatient with it because the because somewhere you've gone wrong and then you have to kind of bend the wood and, and you just see it, the train track all of a sudden there's a right angle where there shouldn't be a right angle and like you know that, that that's the story of me trying to build these train tracks for my kids but Caleb was a, a master at building this stuff and he spent about, well, he would spend ages, like, just building this stuff in his room. And I remember, like, I went to look at it. It spent about two hours up there, and it was impressive. It was going under his bed, and it was, like, going under the bridges, and it was all working right. And I was like, this is amazing. This is brilliant. And then about 20 minutes later, when I was downstairs, I heard him putting it in the box. And so I remember going upstairs, and he kind of just dismantled, like, half of it. And I was like... Caleb, what are you doing? Like, it took so long to build it. And he said, you told me to pack it away. So I never told you to pack it away. He says, oh, I thought, I thought you called upstairs and asked me to pack it away. I was like, oh, that sucks. But for me, I was like, I didn't say it. But he did it, thinking I'd asked it. And for me as a father, I was drawn to that act of obedience, even though I'd never asked him to do it. Does that make sense? I know that's a bit of a weird analogy, hence it didn't make the notes. <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to say is like growing in obedience doesn't look like you hear God's audible voice immediately. And you hear God saying, I've got a picture for that person on the back row. I know you're a bit nervy about it, but just go and share it. And it's all good. Because the truth of the matter is most of the time it's just a little inclination in the pit of your heart. It says, I've just got this nudge. And what I've learned about the obedience to God is that if I don't become obedient to it, it gets more annoying. I'm like, ah, oh, leave me alone. And, you know, sometimes I don't know if I'm fighting with the Lord or myself, but eventually I break and I get to the point of, well, okay, what's the worst that can happen? And so I've shared countless of my stories that are epic failures, like my testimonies. I am not the preacher with testimony that goes and then they got out the wheelchair or they, all of a sudden they they rose back to life. Generally, so far, that has been in my experience. I reckon 70% of my stories have gone wrong. But I just kind of feel like a little child in the presence of father going, I think that's what you're saying. And that's okay. Like, if I'm not operating outside of the mandate of the word, if I'm not jumping onto a lane that the scripture isn't in, and I'm kind of like, I just feel like the Lord's telling you to take out a loan for a million pounds and give it to your pastor. You know, as soon as that, that, that's corruption, that's no good. But if I feel like the Lord is compelling me to be generous, or the Lord is compelling me to be kind, or the Lord is compelling me to be prophetic, then I should chase after that. Because if I truly love Jesus, obedience follows. And I love what Jesus says, because he says, like, if you love me, keep my commands, and verse 16, and I will ask the Father, 
and he will give you another advocate. In Greek, the word is parakletos. Anyone know what it means? Helper. Thank you. Someone who comes alongside. Helper. I love that. Listen, so Jesus, when he sees your love and sees your obedience, he sends a helper. Like some of you need help. (laughs) Some of you really need help. I've seen you, man. Some of you desperately need help. I need help. And this is the idea. The key to help is not better performance. It is better surrender. If you are anxious and worried all the time, the win isn't stop being anxious. All right? Stop being anxious. <laughs> All right. You know, when that anxious thought comes in your head, just stop it. You know, when you're freaking out about life and the health of your kids or your spouse, just stop it. You know, people like that, you want to kind of punch now and again. Kind of like, that's no good to me. It's true though, isn't it? It's kind of like, I, I get it. Like now I feel worse about my predicament because I'm just supposed to switch it off. And you know, there's a sense that you can take every thought captive for sure. So I don't want to undermine that principle. But what I'm trying to say is the key is not better performance, it's better surrender. So it's not like <laughs> I'm just going to pretend like I'm not sick. Well, cancer, no, I'm just going to pretend I don't have cancer. Yeah, but everyone's saying you've got cancer. Right, listen to me. This is a much better posture. Surrender. Jesus, I don't get it, but I'm trusting you. Jesus, I'm at the end of myself here. Jesus, I'm running low on peace and confidence, and courage. Jesus, I feel like giving up. Jesus, I surrender. This posture is more powerful than you can ever realize. You see, to a general, surrender means defeat. But to a follower of Christ, it means total victory. You know, there's something, I looked at it this week, the origin of the white flag. (laughs) This is the nearest thing I've got to a white flag. Typical kind of boy, like, nastiness in his pocket. Okay. <laughs> My jams. Look, send it around the room. Feel it. Look at it. <laughs> and I was looking at the origin of the white flag. Where does the white flag come from? And it actually originated in a battle that happened in ancient China years ago. And two armies, it was a civil issue, but two armies against each other, like the resilience and um, the, the, is that what they're called? The, not the resilience, what are they called? Resistance, thank you. And the empire up against one another in conflict. And the resistance obviously was marching their color, the troops, their, their color. Their, they, had a, they had a philosophy and a way of life that was emboldened on their flags. And really it was in Chinese warfare where this whole notion of get a flag, stick it in the ground, that's our territory. That means that we have won that battle and now that belongs to us. And they are totally being oppressed and, and beaten back by the empire to the point where they have no more options. And so at this point, there was no universally agreed sign of surrender. And so the story goes, they looked at how do we send out something with somebody that speaks to our like, unconditional surrender? And they realized that warfare was all about the planting of flags. And so they got their flag and they kind of put it in some sort of peroxide chemical and basically just cooked off all of the colors on their flag as basically saying, we're done. 
like everything that I marched for, everything that I was about, we're now basically washing away and we are bleaching out. And then imagine being the first person where this is not tested. <laughs> Anyone want to take that flag out there? <laughs> Larry wants to take it. <laughs> hey, why me? I mean, he's not Italian, but maybe he was. I don't know. Hey, Mamma Mia. Play Mario Kart over here. Um, the first person then marched out the white flag, and somehow it became a universal signal of total surrender because what it, what it represented was we're at the end of ourselves, no more of us. Submitting to their governance, submitting to their, their uh, edicts, submitting to their way of life. And I was just thinking about that powerful picture. Maybe in life, you don't even know Jesus yet. And so the Bible says that like, you're, you're an enemy of God. You're an opponent to his plans and purposes. And there's this sense even today that like, God is asking for your white flag. I find that a difficult thing to kind of speak because I realize that what I'm saying is total, unconditional surrender. Surrendering my hopes, surrendering my dreams, surrendering my health, surrendering my mentality, surrendering my relationships. Why? Because Jesus wants it all. And if I love Jesus, I'll obey his commands. And if I obey him, I receive the helper, the one who helps me in life, the one who helps me in challenges, the one who helps me in struggles, the one who helps me in relationships. The key this year to your total success and flourishing is total surrender. We come to communion this morning, and it's a great response to this message. It's a brilliant response to this message, communion. Because the scripture says that communion is for those who have given their life to Christ. In fact, scripture is really clear. It says if you don't know Jesus, don't partake in communion. Because communion is about coming into union with the Father. It's about drinking into the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It's about understanding that my sin required his blood. It, it's, it's understanding that my brokenness required his broken body. That's what communion is. And you think of, you know, when I think about Jesus and surrender, I think about the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve created in the image of God, knowing union with the Father, yet they were tempted to sin and they became subjugated by sin and they lost their union with the Father. And the whole root of that moment of failure was to do with the fact that they were tempted and they failed to surrender. They decided that they wanted to see things as God saw things as the serpent kind of sold them. This idea that why would God hold back from us? Like why would this God who is so good, Ben, do you want to come on up and take his? Why would this God who is so good deprive us of, of seeing like he's seeing and knowing how he knows? And Adam and Eve were tempted, but they failed to surrender. 
But then thousands of years later, Jesus, that Paul calls the second Adam, Jesus comes. And in this time, instead of being in the Garden of Eden, we see it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this moment, Jesus, who was fully God, the I am, and fully man, I don't know how to say this because maybe it will rock your notion of who Christ is, but it's important you understand. He has a moment where he questions the purposes of God. Jesus looks at the path before him and sees that it leads to a brutal crucifixion. And Jesus comes to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Lord, if there's another way, if there's another way where we can get the same outcome without paying this price, then that would be great. (laughs) Bearing in mind that the reason Jesus came was to die. The reason Jesus came was because God so loved the world that he wanted no one to perish. And so a man had to be born who lived a perfect life so that he could die in our place, but live so perfectly that death couldn't hold him. And so Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want to call it a wobble because I think that would be unfair. But Jesus comes before the Father in a different garden to Adam. And he says, Lord, if there's another way. But then Jesus becomes obedient. He says in the New Testament, Paul says, obedient to death. Even death on a cross because the purposes of God led Jesus to the cross. And so Jesus resolves in his heart in this moment where he's pouring his heart out before the Father. And he says these words, Yet not my will be done, but yours be done. And I just wonder this morning if there's some of us that need to adopt that posture of humility. You see, Adam and Eve, they failed to surrender but Jesus succeeded by surrendering and so just for a moment before we partake in the Lord's table and communion I encourage you just to wait on the spirit of God just allow the Lord to speak to you maybe there's an area of your life and heart that Jesus is saying you're not trusting me here you've not given me this yet maybe there's a mindset or a quality of character that is lacking or maybe it's more sinister than that maybe it's sinful attitudes maybe it's lust Maybe it's apathy. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and bring revelation to us, Lord. And you know, if you're between the age of 10 to 16, this is so relevant to you. Because Jesus wants a relationship with you. 
and he wants you to know him. That's what he wants. And maybe there's something in your life that is just bottlenecking you moving forward in God. So as we come to communion, I mean, even in the scriptures, it says, listen, if you've got an issue with somebody in the fellowship, like if there is relational conflict, then you need to go resolve that before you partake in communion. Like communion is so special and so intimate with the Father. It's why I often don't like doing it in big gatherings like this. Because it requires introspection. It requires personal reflection. But Holy Spirit, we just welcome you this morning, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you want to empower us. That you want to give us a helper. That you want to move amongst us. That you want to lead us. That you want to strengthen us. That you want to make us more bold. But Jesus, we're sorry. We're sorry for the times, Lord, where we've worshipped an idol, where we've put something or someone else before you. In the last two years, maybe there's been slippage in our walk with you, Lord, where you haven't been number one, where you haven't been priority, where your name has been irrelevant to us, where we've been apathetic about your purposes. Well, Jesus, this morning, we just invite you to come and to stand before us and recommission us. Maybe in this room right now with every head bowed and every eye closed, there's some people who know they need to respond to Jesus this morning. And, and you don't fully know what the response is, but you know you need to get right with Jesus this morning. Maybe this is a first time thing where you've never got right with Jesus before, but today you feel just, I need to get this right. As I said last week, I need to fix my faith. I need to trust in Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I invite you to stand where you are. Every head's bowed, every eye closed. It's an important opportunity here to respond to that invitation, to get right with Father. anybody who is aware that there's an area of your life that has not yet been surrendered to Jesus just stand where you are it's important that you come with a spirit of humility don't worry what others think don't worry about your status or your profile those things are irrelevant when it comes to moments with God the scripture says Humble yourself under his mighty hand. And what's amazing is the outcome is that when you adopt the posture of humility, it says that God lifts you up. See, the goal is that you are lifted up, not pushed down. But in pride, so often we try to build ourselves up 
and God has to bring us down. But the posture of surrender is to say, I choose to bring myself down so that every bit of elevation I experience comes from your hand. And so just in this moment, whatever it may be, whatever you've been holding back from Jesus, a thought, a, a thought pattern, a, a sinful act, or, or just apathy, or indifference. I just think about the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus went to surrender to the Heavenly Father. His disciples were sleeping in the garden. And I just feel that's a word even for now. Like God wants you to wake up. He wants you to wake up. Jesus says to his disciples, could you not even watch with me for an hour? So maybe just respond to that if you feel like you've been sleeping in life. Just to stand up as a sign of resurrection and come on, standing to the purposes of God and saying, look, Jesus, I'm done. I'm done with just sleeping through this hour. I'm done with being lethargic and indifferent to what it is you're doing. You know, if that resonates with you, stand up. Stand up. Come on, it's time. It's time. It's time. Time, guys, it's time. The world needs a powerful church. The world needs a church on fire for Jesus. The world needs a, a church that is going after Jesus 110. The world needs a church that is full of passion and zeal for the house. Come on. This is a moment. If you're standing, I just pray that you open your, your hands to heaven as a sign of surrender. Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters responding this moment. Lord God, I thank you for them. I thank you for their willingness to be humble in your presence and in our presence, Lord God. Father, we repent of the times that we have just kind of meandered through life apathetically and indifferently. Jesus, I pray this morning, God, for every man, woman, and child who are standing in response, Lord God. May they feel a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit on them, Lord God. Father, would you cause them to have vision for their future and for the future, Lord God. Father, would you quicken their spirit, Lord God. Would you help them to repent? Would you help them to turn their back on old mindsets, old attitudes that have got them stuck for so long? Jesus, we come against the scheme, schemes and agenda of the enemy. Lord God, we know the enemy has demons on assignment to restrict the church, to hold back the church. But Jesus, this morning, we plead the blood of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name that Satan would be put in his place by the church, by this church, Lord God. Father, you've given us spiritual weapons for the demolishing of strongholds. And so right now, Father, I just speak in faith over every brother and sister standing in response this morning. Liberty and freedom and life and healing and wholeness and fullness of life and abundance of life, God. Give them clarity in their mind, God. Father, would you cause their spirits within them to set alight, Father. God, that their passion for you would go from strength to strength, from glory to glory. Lord God, I just pray, God, for the awakening of your church, for a revival in your church, not just in this church, but in the church, Lord God. God, I pray for a fire to fall in the house, Lord God. I pray for a mighty river of heaven to flow through us as your people into the world around us, God. 
Father, I pray this morning, just before we take communion, Lord God, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we stand in response, Lord God, that you would cause us to become even more obedient and even more in love with you, Lord. God, I come against the spirit of apathy. I come against the spirit of indifference and lethargy. I break any historic trauma and any power that it might have that might keep us in a state of slumber. For Paul says in Ephesians, let the light of Christ shine on you, that you would awaken from your slumber and that you would rise from the dead. Jesus, I thank you, God, that the gospel doesn't just make a bad person good. It makes a dead person alive. And Jesus, I thank you this morning, God, that you are calling us to be alive as the church. God, we cannot, we cannot live for Christ when we only surrender some. And so Jesus, even for myself, Lord, I just pray, God, that I'll be humble in your presence, Lord, and receive everything that you're saying, Lord God. I pray that for us, God. Bring to surface, bring to mind, God. Put your finger on it, Lord God. Help us to get right with you, Lord. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And the rest of us, let's just stand to our feet for a moment. I encourage you just to peel back the first layer of the cup. And this little tablet thing, I know it's so bizarre. and almost feels like Anglican or Catholic or something. But, you know, it's a symbol this morning of the body of Christ. And so just break it with your fingers. Just break it right there. And it's a symbol of the broken body of Christ. That when he was hung on the cross... His body was broken and his, his, his body was beaten and it suffered like pain and it suffered separation from the Heavenly Father. But the whole purpose of this is that his broken body could make you fully whole. And so this morning, just as you eat it now, just say thank you to Jesus for his death. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then just peel back the next layer and get to the grape juice, which symbolizes the blood of Christ. And I know if you don't know Jesus this morning, it seems like a weird action. But simply all we're doing is we are identifying our need for Christ and the need for his death and his resurrection for our life Jesus calls this the blood of the covenant and so ultimately it's in the blood that that promise of salvation is assured and sealed and as we drink this together we just acknowledge that we need his death I'm just going to invite the band up. But Father God, we thank you this morning for the cross. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you the fact that you laid your, down, your life down so that we could find our life. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, this morning for communion. And Jesus, I just pray for my brothers and sisters in this church, Lord, in this house. Cause our hearts to be fired up for your presence. Help us to surrender all. 
and not just some today. In Jesus' name.